Today's topic is do human lives matter equally? If they do, why doesn't the world look like they do? And if they should, why are we doing such a half-assed job of getting there? I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim, but slightly less caffeinated than you. Yeah, no, that was quite quite the mumble from me. I'm trying to talk a little bit faster than perhaps my mouth can handle. Oh, the um, brain is just going <laughs> so super fast that trying to keep up with it is just impossible. Two black coffees for someone who doesn't drink a lot of caffeine. And yeah. hasn't had any food yet. Good point. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Started the enzymes in my stomach. It's trying to digest stuff that isn't there. Oh, that's okay. As long as it doesn't eat you from the inside out. <laughs> You've posed an excellent question. It's one that I'm not sure I have thought about very hard over my life. If we should value all human lives equally, why should we value you know, someone evil? I think the reason why I wanted to bring it up today is... Mm. You know, Duke, who helps me with complex problem solving, who you know, and mm. listeners, you'll know eventually when he comes on and talks about his PhD. But he got very interested in effective altruism, mm. which is this idea that if you're going to give and help, give and help in the most effective way possible. So there's a whole research center on effective altruism. And I have to say from, you know, reading for a week and watching a lot of their YouTube videos, well, listening. Again, I'm so used to being around side of people, even I say watching videos. Because <laughs> you're what, listening to videos? Huh? So watching videos for a week, which of course I didn't, I listened to them. <laughs> I conclude that effective altruism is a crock of shit. Interesting. And does Duke still believe in it for interest's sake? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about that further later <laughs> when he comes on. But my reason for saying it's a crock of shit is it's like, duh, if you're going to try and help people, haven't you thought, through what your idea of effective is. Now, if you give a dollar to someone on the street who's hungry, is that effective? You don't know if they buy drugs or food. At the end of the day, if it makes the day better, do you care if it's drugs or food? Yeah, that's true. My premise is as long as they feel better from me giving them a dollar or two coin, I'd like it to be food. But if drugs is going to take the pain away, that's okay too. But the famous video about effective altruism is Peter Singer, you know, talking about where it came from, how it grew, what it means. And Peter Singer always annoys me. Is he not a fan? What annoys me about Peter Singer is he reduces everything to a level of abstraction where it is the moral thing to do because he has abstracted it so far from life it's otherworldly. Yeah. I... And logically it works. But I don't do things because they're logical. I do things because they're logical and they fit with some deeper sense of being a human at a physical level, at an emotional level. It, there's a really good example of that. He has a book that I own by him, which is a collection of small essays mm. where he handles things like veganism or happiness and, and mm. in a matter of maybe three or four pages. It, it is it is so, yeah, you're right. It is it is reducing it to a le, like a, a level of abstraction. It's abstraction almost says, to the point of absurdity. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. And that really shits me because... One thing I've learned through teaching from being a violinist, from being a guitarist, mm. is the only way you touch people, and no, David's not being creepy, <laughs> the only way you affect people 
is to make it visceral, mm. to make it human about the physical or emotional sensations of being alive. So in his video on effective altruism that shits me to tears, he goes, well, here in the developed world, if a blind person needed a guide dog, that's thousands of dollars. Mm. Those thousands of dollars could be used to save thousands of people's sight in the developing world. So, of course, good effective altruism is to spend the money to save sight in the developing world. And my immediate response to this is to see red mm. and go, now I'm really pissed. I'm like, why am I really pissed? At a fundamental level, if there was only one small bucket of money, I would want it to be used to save sight in the developing world as well. Over training one guide dog for one person in the developed world. Mm. I actually agree with that. So why am I so bloody angry? So I started trying to five wire. And where I got to with my five wires was a twofold answer. One, there are so many resources in the world that we can save people's sight in the developing world and empower a blind people person in you know the West in the developed world to be able to engage more significantly with life and society, which will enhance society because society will have to be open to difference and a blind person might use their talent. Mm. And what if that blind person is me and I teach 100 people about effective altruism in a visceral way where they then actually do something rather than going, oh, yes, great argument, but mm, no, it didn't emotionally touch me. And that got me into all sorts of weird territory. <laughs> <laughs> the question immediately strikes me as um, a false, like a dichotomy. Like it's yeah, uh, something's wrong with it, isn't it? Yeah, but like why do we need to put? It's either this or that. Yeah, there's two things going on here. I think if someone in the developing world is blind, there's a good chance the society doesn't have the resources to help them. They're mm. screwed. Mm, mm. if I don't have a guide dog here and I don't have a guide dog, so let's use another blind person. If a blind person here doesn't have a guide dog, via organisations like guide dogs and through the NDIS, they'll still be trained to use a cane. Mm. The two things are not the same. Therefore, it is not effective altruism. It is comparing an apple and a broccoli. Mm. There is no similarity there. So what we get in Singer's argument is a conflation of being alive and quality of life. Mm. Having sight in the developing world quite possibly will keep you alive. Mm. Having a guide dog in the West will increase your quality of life because there's likely already the resources that you will stay alive either way. And conflating those two things is like, hang on, what do we mean then by effective altruism? Hang on, what do we mean by the most effective assistance? Mm. In some situations, we need to keep people alive. In other situations, we're talking about quality of life. And they're not the same thing, mm. but they are related. Any spectrum should not just be to keep people alive. It should be to make sure they're alive in the best condition they can be with a gradually increasing quality of life. So at this point I went and looked and went, okay, um, UN Declaration of Human Rights, yeah, 
all humans have equal value. Well, it's in the document. In reality, does our world represent that? No. That doesn't... Yeah, but that is because of things like racism or, or whatever it is, you know, like... Racism, you know, regionism, yeah. sexism. Just tribalism generally. <laughs> you know, location of resources, <laughs> mm. historical relationship to former empires. Mm. You know, from a guns, germs and steel perspective, a Jared Diamond perspective, do you have the right plants and animals to have got the geographical lottery? Mm. If you didn't, life's hard. So within... The UN, we have aspirational language, mm-hmm. but it's not aspirational. It's saying that all lives do have equal value. No, they don't. Mm. That's an aspiration. If the language said all lives should have equal value, that might make people go, ah, oh, good point. They don't, but we want them to. Mm. US Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Yeah. Inalienable rights. All men and now women. Born equal. Bullshit. It was written by slave owners. Hmm. It was once again a dream about how it could be. And I think my problem with these dreams, and sorry I cut you off, my my problem with these dreams is if you say they're equal, Hmm. it does two things. One, it says we're already there because we think it. Hmm. And two, it says to anyone who sees it's bullshit that these people are willing to be hypocrites. They're willing to say something is already true that patently isn't. Mm. And now I'll, I'll let you jump back in before I talk over you again. Well, this is, it's okay. No, uh, this immediately for me bleeds into arguments about abortion, uh, whether a certain a, a, a baby's life has equal value or an unborn baby's life has equal value to a mother who may not benefit or not live her life to the correct extent well, to the you know on, on the path that she may want to because of uh, you know giving birth or whatever in Alabama this week mm. laws signed that a woman who is raped mm. or raped by daddy or brother can't have an abortion wow that's awful so that little life is so damn important that someone is going to have to look at the face of their trauma for their whole life from the child that potentially came from it I'm not sure that especially if it was from a, another family member, what, what, is the, what is the quality of life for, for that child? Well, the genetic implications are potentially terrible. Yeah. So we're going to say that life has so much sanctity mm. that genetic flaws and a traumatized mum is more important. This is where I want to bring up. It's actually an economic argument. Price is what you pay and value is what you get. Mm. So is a child's life valuable because you have to go through the process of uh, birth and because it is born? Or is it valuable because of what that child can bring to the world, the that, light that it can bring to the world? And that's uh, I hadn't even thought of it in those terms of relating price and value, mm. but that works really nicely. Yeah. What is the price? of giving some life equal value. Mm. The price is extraordinarily high for very low value unless you think there is a sanctity of human life Mm. that transcends all else. And if you think that, then put your money where your mouth is Mm -hmm. and pay the price for dealing with the consequences. Mm. Should human life have equal value? Yes. But that means we have to work with different prices to get that equal value different prices to empower people, 
different prices to go. There's life, then there's quality of life. Mm. And that life isn't quality of life. They're not the same thing. Lots of people are alive and have a terrible quality of life. So that we end up at this point of going, because we've said all life has equal value, all human life has equal value, we end up with situations where the price for people is going to be huge. Mm. The price of being a rape victim could be knowing your whole life that this little human exists that reminds you of the worst day of your life. Yeah. That a child is born from incest that is genetically fucked up. Mm. Mm. Now that price is much greater than value. And economic reductionism, not my thing. Mm-hmm. but it is the simplest way to present what otherwise could turn into the kind of abstract moral argument that Singer makes that shits me to tears. And what I like about this is we can think of price and value in emotional and physical terms. Mm. They don't just have to be financial. So audience, you know, if we're using the words price and value here, think about them in terms of what is the physical cost of this? What is the emotional cost of this? What is the physical value of this? What is the emotional value of saying that all life has equal value? If we jump into the episode with Morris on evil, Mm. some people can be rehabilitated. Their behavior is modifiable. Mm -hmm. But if someone's behavior is not modifiable, what is the price of warehousing them for 50 years. Yeah, as opposed to putting them on death row. Yeah, so you know, Ivan Milat, serial killer here in Australia, mm. old man now, has just been moved on to a cancer ward, got terminal cancer. What's it going to cost to treat someone who is irredeemable? And I don't mean that in a religious way. Mm-hmm. I mean in terms of has he ever shown any interest in modifying his behaviour so he can rejoin society without being a danger to the rest of us? Mm. The evidence appears to be, no, he's gleeful about what he is and he scares the crap out of us. Well, a a good pop culture reference at the moment would be Ted Bundy as well. Mm. The same kind of situation has almost shown just before he was on death row was kind of, yeah, gleeful about... The the trauma and drama that he caused to the world. Admitted, uh, is it 17, but they think it's something like 50. Uh, I can't exactly remember the numbers. No, but again, everyone assumes it's higher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So out of me being annoyed at Singer about effective altruism, Mm. it opens this can of worms of quality of life versus just being alive. Don't state an ideal without saying should in front. Mm. All lives should matter and quality of life should be a priority once people have life. If that was what it said you know, on the UN Declaration of Human Rights, if that's what it said, you know, in um, you know, the, the US sort of Declaration of Independence, mm. fine. That's aspirational and it demands we engage. We can't hide behind phrases with should in them. It bleeds into arguments about eugenics though, doesn't it? Because, you know, as, as soon as you say that a certain life has value, over others or at least quality of life is Mm. a part of the equation over a life's value, then are we saying that children born with certain disabilities or um, 
let's say, genetic defects. Mutations maybe is a less loaded word. Well, just something went horribly wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like premature or whatever it is. Their quality of life has been lessened, let's say. Mm. And this opens up a frightening debate, and Mm. that is at what point has potential quality of life been damaged so significantly Mm. that we wouldn't want to inflict that reduced quality on someone or on people to have to care for that person for 70 years. Mm -hmm. But I would rather that we were having this proper debate Mm. than going, sanctity of life, sanctity of life. But do we put the money in? Do we put the resources in? Is the debate sophisticated enough? And the abortion debate would be one way into all of this. But that's... That's got even more layers because it's about is someone ready and equipped to be a parent? Mm. Do they feel supported? Are they going to have what they need to do a good job and potentially empower that next person to have quality of life and really value the life that you know, grew out of it? It's, it's, this is a really hard argument for people to hear, I think, and, and on, on both sides of the debate in terms of for the religious side. You know, we're all God's creations or whichever mm. version of that uh, you, you, you may believe in. Does that bleed into animals? I know that we're specifically talking about humans here and we'll get into veganism, I think, in another episode. Yeah. But- and we might need to do an animal one too because I'd had the same thought when I was thinking about this episode mm. because I actually think what it comes perhaps down to, and this will get us into you know a book, that I want to talk about. And I haven't read the book yet, but mm. I've listened to the podcast with Sam Harris, which is you know, Nicholas Christakis. And I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, Nicholas. Uh, his book, Blueprint, all about how society is essentially a consequence of evolutionary process. Mm. The culture is a consequence of evolutionary process. And in that podcast with Sam Harris and Nicholas Christakis is a big discussion about the role of consciousness in building culture and building a society. Well, we now know we might have the highest level of consciousness, but that we're not the only conscious creature. Several forms of whale demonstrate high levels of consciousness. Dolphins demonstrate a fairly high level of consciousness. Mm. Some of the great apes demonstrate a high level of consciousness. Uh, Octopi demonstrate a frighteningly high level of consciousness. And they raise a freaky evolutionary question of why does something so smart only live three years? How did they get essentially both the best bit of the lottery and the worst? They can learn. They can understand so much. They can teach each other given an opportunity. Mm -hmm. But just as they're beginning to get to the point of having a pretty amazing level of consciousness, they die. That's a freaky thing for another day if we can get a biologist on. But what we get in this question of somewhere between does human life matter equally becomes mm. a question of do we value human life on the basis of the level of consciousness? Or someone would perhaps even reduce this to sentience, you know, because mm. uh, this uh, I'm, I'm going to try and keep this on the human perspective that through the gestation period, it's not exactly clear when, you know, that basic cells become conscious into like into a conscious baby yeah 
and so then you you would imagine that that might be the the cutoff point but at what point does that that baby just feel pain because i mean that is also some kind of form of sentience where well not just feel pain in the sense of a physical response mm. but at an emotional psychological level know that pain is happening want to pull back from the pain, want to avoid pain like it in the future yeah. and remember that pain happened. There's proof that some forms of plants feel feel pain on a physical level. Mm. but have They no certainly can try and pull back but they can't mm. reflect on it and go try and avoid it in the yeah, future. Right. Whereas you know, pain as a measure is interesting because of all those things. You can physically respond to it. Mm. You can emotionally know it happened. You can psychologically know it happened and you can reflect on it and remember it. And they are all big signs of consciousness. So does innocence play into this level of value as well? Uh, well, again, our thing about talking about you know, serial killers. Mm. You know, if your behavior is not modifiable and you've done harm to other conscious beings who feel pain. Is the potential to do good part of the equation? So, you know, someone who has perhaps raped someone, let's say, an awful thing to do, that person theoretically, if, if their behavior is modifiable, has the potential to do good. However, mm. if you were to look at something like, you know, if you were to look at an animal or a small child or you know, a, a life form that is incapable of raping, mm. uh, they're innocent in that sense, but their potential to do good is also lessened. Yeah, and that's the thing with children, why they're so fascinating and so freaking weird because simultaneously they're going to get a grown-up brain that can both choose good or otherwise, mm. but they ain't there yet. Mm. And they'll get there as a consequence of how they're raised and whether that then kicks off genetic predispositions. Yeah, so there's all sorts of interesting questions in this. And I think this is uh, it starts to give us a natural segue into Sam Harris talking to Nicholas Christakis. Mm -hmm. And I'll say for listeners, yeah, I love Sam Harris's first book, The Moral Landscape. <laughs> Actually, is it his first book? I think it's his first book. It's certainly one of his very early books. Yes. If not... The earliest, I think it's the most important and perhaps the last important book he wrote. Mm -hmm. Since then, a lot of the time, he's racist and annoying. And he is the kind of angry atheist that pisses people off rather than engages them because he goes to, again, like Peter Singer, the height of abstraction and in doing so, somewhere loses humanity. So he, he first wrote books about Christianity. Yeah. A letter to, to oh, Christianity. Oh, yeah, that's before the moral landscape. And the end of faith, yes. Yeah, so it's the third book. Yeah. But in my opinion, it's the one where he goes, actually, make an argument rather than picking on people. Mm. The thing I don't, I'm, I'm not a huge, like I've read The Moral Landscape. It's actually the only book of his mm. that I have read. However, I've seen him you know, in debates and he's mm. quite the intellectual dark, dark wave celebrity at the moment. Mm. His, his approach to free will, I'm not. I'm not necessarily on board with, but it's interesting you call him racist. He he adamantly defends that he he isn't, but he talks about Islam a lot. Well, and that's my point is that what else do you? I, I don't know. There's a, there's a word for being anti a particular religion, mm. but there's not a word for being anti all religion. So to me, you need to call it racism. Mm. I don't know a better word, but to me, someone who is meant to be open to persuading people and using reason to get along with them mm. is pretty good at aggravating more people than. He engages positively. Yeah, I, I agree with that. He doesn't engage as positively as he could, which is interesting coming from the moral landscape. That, yeah. Because that is, has elements of utilitarianism in it. Well, listeners, for anyone who hasn't read it, the really significant idea in the moral landscape is imagine a flat surface 
and there's a point somewhere on it there's the point of absolute awfulness. Mm. Everything that can go wrong and that is horrible is there. The aim of humans is to move away from that point towards human well-being or human flourishing, which can be measured you know, medically, mm. psychologically. And that because it's a point on a plane, you could move any direction from that point of awfulness and what you've done is to do something more moral that leads to human well-being and flourishing, which means two people could go in opposite directions but get it, you know, equidistant from that point of awfulness. Both be very moral but be very different. So how could the guy who came up with that mm. not accept that if people can use faith to get well-being and flourishing, that that's not a good thing? Mm. Now, does faith have its problems? Yes. Does atheism have its problems? Yes, if you're an annoying atheist. Well, he's a, yeah, like a militant atheist. Yeah, well, militant anything <laughs> means they don't listen to other people. Well, I can provide listeners with one reason why we might not like him is his last book is uh, the subtitle, The Future of Tolerance. <laughs> yeah, yucky word, <laughs> yucky Sam. Now, that's a big digression from why we're talking about mm, Nicholas Christakis. Well, it's useful to help people understand why we went there, but... Nicholas Christakis is a fascinating person because he was originally a doctor and worked in hospices doing palliative care mm. before becoming a researcher. And his fascination is how society is a consequence of evolutionary process. That things that are good for the group get doubled down on because the group does well, it looks after its kids, it looks after its old people, its old people teach its kids. And as time goes on, societies grow and change and that that is just part of evolution. Mm. And that his underlying premise is that societies at the heart of them, they can go wrong. But generally speaking, they would not have happened if society was not a good thing and didn't encourage people to be good mm. because if people were always at each other's throat, they wouldn't work together reliably enough to double down on those behaviours being supported by the next generation and reinforcing genes that are expressed as a consequence of those behaviours. So socialisation supports genes that support more socialisation and in the end we become more social. So in this is both a recognition that society is a consequence of the fact it works and that in the main it has led to people being more good than bad. Mm. And I think in Christakis, in this book Blueprint, if we get a chance to read it, I think that would be great to talk about the book directly and to maybe try and get Nicholas on mm. if we can and see if he wants to respond. But in this thing of recognising that society and culture are consequences of evolution and that in the main they are good and better for people, we see an underpinning for we should value human life and we should value quality of life because what does society do at a core but make life better for people and try and give people a quality of life. But it's a should because there's no guarantees because as Nicholas points out, Sometimes societies go wrong. Mm. Sometimes chunks of societies go very wrong. And he made a fascinating point in 
the podcast with Sam Harris that Sam Harris didn't pick up on uh, as he doesn't pick up on anything that doesn't suit him. And that was Nicholas made the point that in almost all societies where a small group go, no, we are going to walk away from the big broad society and make our own perfect utopia as a bunch of weird outsiders. Well, guess what? When weird outsiders wander off and try and make their own society, it pretty much ends up wrong, cultish and weird mm. far more often than it works because the whole point with big societies that are balanced, that are relatively inclusive, that offer people a place to learn, a place to participate, a place to add value is they tend to provide more opportunities for everyone to do okay. And that's not saying ancient societies who were imperialistic and had slaves were fantastic. Mm. But were they better than a lot of what else was around at the time? Yes. And did they evolve? Yes. But did the weird little sect that went off into the wilderness and tried to make their perfect society not based in things that have already been achieved? Yeah, they normally fail. You know, last night I started reading, um, what's it called, Upheaval by Jared Diamond. Mm -hmm. And his argument in that is that when, you know, societies and states that have been through really traumatic and horrible times, if they can come out the other end and improve, it's because they do selective adaptation. Mm -hmm. They keep what was good and improve what doesn't work anymore. And they very deliberately don't try and change everything. So ironically, I think in Christakis' book Blueprint and in the beginnings of upheaval seem to be this thread of what makes societies evolutionary and generally good is that with a large group of people, you can double down on the good and change what doesn't work. And that that is the process that makes human life valuable and makes quality of life a worthy aspiration. Mm. So to answer Singer's original question about effective altruism, we actually need to go, in what society are we trying to argue that human life should have equal value and that quality of life should be our next important task? Because the nature of the society in question will determine what we do next. Here in the West, we don't have people going blind because of lack of medical care at a basic level. Mm. So we want to improve quality of life for blind people with a guide dog. But we should be using resources to make sure that people in the developing world keep their sight. Mm. Because they are at the, to be alive goes better if your eyes work, quality of life above that is for their society to decide later. When they are ready, they can say that women matter as much as men, mm. that sexual violence is unacceptable, that everyone having a high school education is a minimum acceptable standard. But mm. that is not at the same time as getting people alive. Somehow resources have to be juggled. If people are still dying of you know, simply treated diseases, going blind because of simply treated diseases. That should not take all the resources because you want to improve quality of life as well. But you need to improve the basics of life before you then invest heavily in quality of life. And all these things should have the word should in front. Mm. We should be making 
human lives have equal value. We should be improving quality of life because the minute the word should is there, we can't go, oh, yes, we already have that in major documents. Why should I care? Mm. Well, you should care because your society cared and that's why you live in a modern Western democratic state that gives you the chance to be healthy and have a guide dog if you need it. it this strikes me as like what basically it's naturalism, right? It's, it's that there is a natural or evolutionary basis for our morals and our moral standings and why why we have morals isn't just this made up thing because we're humans and it's conscious not abstract. and special it's yeah. about being conscious it actually has a purpose yeah and because it can appear consciously in humans if we look elephants have a society with culture mm. whales have a society with culture wolves who have a much lower level of consciousness still have a society with culture and out of their society and culture morals about don't you know do no more harm than you need to emerge in most species with higher levels of consciousness so by abstracting to the degree singer does mm. you're taking away what got us there you're saying that with this finished brain at the current stage of evolution i can abstract something perfect that if we all do it the world will be lovely you know, the follow-up video, that the one that shits me nearly as much, is by a British postgrad, and she makes the argument, if we did the thing that effective altruists are pushing for, and that is, all gave 10% of our income, we could solve all these problems. Wouldn't it be amazing? And she does the calculation and says, if, you know, the richest 10% of humans on Earth gave 10% of their income every year, in a matter of a couple of years, we could solve most problems. I'm there, but they don't. Mm. And they don't for psychological and emotional reasons that are bigger than their ability to abstract because their psychological and emotional experience is more powerful in their life than their ability to abstract. And then I went, oh, well, that's kind of powerful. <laughs> it explains why I teach through visceral examples. Someone lived through this. Someone had to decide this. What were the consequences for them? To ground things in the physiology, psychology and emotions of life. And then listening to the Sam Harris, Nicholas Christakis podcast triggered another really interesting thought in me. They got into an interesting debate about why is it we can de-individuate for the sake of the group when it's a group we love and are well connected to. Well, because that is socially expedient. Without a society, how will we raise kids? How will we look after the old? How will we improve our lives? How will we allow specialization so that someone can become the person who trains the guide dog? Someone else can become the doctor that can treat the disease that can destroy sight. We need the ability to de-individuate and see our identity as part of something bigger. Is that a bit unrealistic? Uh, you, uh, Which bit? Is it is it in is it unrealistic to expect people to de-individuate when you know we're talking about value of life? I think that most people would argue that it is effectively impossible to say that you would value a stranger over someone that is in your family. Uh, precisely, and this is something you you've got to the same point that they got to, mm. and that is we can surrender it being about us to the point of it being about the group we care about and belong to. We struggle above that. So 
there's a fantastic book, and I doubt you know Sam Harris or Nicholas you know, Christakis were aware of it because it's very much a political theory book. It's neither of their areas. A fantastic book by Benedict Anderson called Imagine Communities. Mm-hmm. And it helps to understand how we can think of ourselves of being Australian or being British or being German or being French. And his argument is that this is one of the wonderful consequences of literacy. The size of the group we can care about goes up dramatically with literacy because we can read books in the language we use about people like us and feel connected to them. And I would argue that radio, you know, TV did a similar thing. We can feel connected to those people because they're using our language and they're dressing like us and talking like us and their body language is like us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and podcasts are a very deep expression of this mm-hmm. where you are talking almost one-on-one. Well, you and I are talking to one other person who's listening mm. on the bus on their, their headphones. Mm-hmm. They can't answer back immediately, but we're talking like they matter. Well, they do. and in, Precisely. But this is the point. They matter at multiple levels. Mm. They matter because they're part of a similar society that's been through the same evolutionary process that values humans and good in a similar way. Mm. They matter because they're part of the evolutionary process forward of perhaps enhancing the society by pushing thinking. They matter in a Benedict Anderson way because of imagined community. They're only hearing us, they can't see us, but because they're literate and we're literate and we can talk in language that we've all been trained to understand in a similar way. They can understand our stories and our arguments. Mm. The level to which it fails at is when we get to Singerian abstraction I love this word, Singerian abstraction or two words. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the point where we take all the humanity out and try and convince people with moral argument that because there's no person left in it, to me ends up hollow. Mm-hmm. And even when the people are left in, like his blind example, his blind example is bullshit because it compares life on one hand for people in Africa or the developing world where having their sight will keep them alive with quality of life for someone in the developed world who needs a guide dog to have a quality of life. And because that abstraction takes life out, it fails. Mm. Society leaves life in. Benedict Anderson extends the group of people we have a sense of shared space, physiology, psychology, emotion to its biggest standard. But if we want that to be bigger than a big tribe like Australia, we need to use things that continue to be visceral. Storytelling, news, arguments have to keep having people with lives and decisions and consequences so that we extend our should all lives be valued equally, yes, to them as well. Should quality of life be critically important, yes, because we can see that even though that person might be a little bit different to us culturally or in social terms, the physiological experience of living on earth is similar. The psychological experience of learning to survive in a difficult world is similar. Mm. The psychological experience of feeling crushed because some part of you, like your eyes, doesn't work is the same. This is so important. It 
links back to other things that we've mentioned in other podcasts. Yeah. It links back to uh, Glasser. It links back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It yes. links back to the righteous mind. mind. Yes. Because it's about what things we are preferencing to get to the, the society that we want to be in. Yeah. And this is not just the things, it has the extra level of which people. Mm. So most societies know which things they value and therefore which people they will include. But you need to extend the size of the circle of should value these people equally by going, it doesn't matter that their culture is slightly different. It doesn't matter that their society is slightly different. What matters is that physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, they're living almost identical lives to us with the same need to be valued and for the quality of their life to be enhanced. And the only way, in my opinion, we're going to grow the circle of inclusion is to have the word should in front of any question of value mm -hmm. rather than go on it's a pre-gone conclusion because we said so, bullshit. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't have should, people won't do it. And secondly, to go, we can only imagine a group of a certain size being really similar to us. But if we start thinking about the consequences of difficult choices, the consequence of difficult days, and we can empathize because the physiology of it, the psychology of it, the emotions of it become tangible in us, then the circle of inclusion of value can grow, but not through abstraction. And I think when we get Dukon, this is when Duke and I might actually for the first time ever get it in a heated argument, that he has that ability, I don't, to abstract and still emotionally care mm -hmm. in a state of heightened abstraction. Whereas it's the reason I am not a philosopher. It's the reason I'm a teacher. We, we, I'm not we, saying you can't be both, but I'm not. I'm not a philosopher mm -hmm. and a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm a teacher who understands philosophy because what I teach is you need to understand enough about someone else's life to care so that you want to include them in the better world you're building. Is the job here to be emotionless, though, in, in, the, in, in, in that abstract? I don't know if it's the job, but it's where Western philosophy has gone to its absolute detriment mm. of losing most people's willingness to care. And yet when we have causes like, or just any charity that says terrible things are happening to this kid in Syria, mm. I will tug on your heartstrings, give money now, that immediately goes back to emotion because people know it works. But where's the sophistication of the argument there? You want 10 bucks from me now so that kid eats. Mm. Awesome. But is that effective? That kid eats for the day I put the money in. How does that kid's society get safer? How do we include that kid's parents? How do we include that kid's extended family? How do we include a town of refugees into something we care about to help them build a good society out of the trauma they've all been through together in Syria? I know that saving the kid so they eat is important, but we need the plan of extending the circle of inclusion so that we don't just feed the kid once and then let them suffer the next day because that's shit <laughs> and I don't want to be part of that. Why do I give you know, money to help here? Because I can follow up. Mm. 
I can see what happens. Is that the most effective use of the money if we used effective altruism? No. Money would be better spent helping kids in the developed world. But I can't follow up, which means I stop caring, I stop believing. And if I stop caring and believing, I stop wanting to put money in and I return to wanting to put money and time in to things I can directly touch or be touched by. The physiology of helping, the psychology of helping, and getting the flow back of the impact of what you did. Like when I taught you lot last year, when I taught my first shoot in 2002, there is an immediate flow back of you teach, people mm. learn, they ask questions, they walk out of the room different than they came in and ready to be in the world differently. And all right, plenty of you out there will say, stop being an egotist, no teacher has that big an impact. Oh, and I'll go bullshit and yeah, piss off. Exactly. Okay, I struggle some years to have that impact because I don't have the tools to get through to a particular class. Well, it's it, it's also an emotional connection, connection thing. You can't yeah. expect someone to connect emotionally or you can't expect someone to connect at that deep level with everyone in the world. No, it's not going to work. Or you're going to be overwhelmed by the pain in the world. Mm. So what you need to be able to do is go, I'm not going to be crushed by it, but I'm never going to surrender being emotionally connected to it. Mm. That's a balance point and it's not an easy balance point. But it's the balance point that says just because, you know, the Human Rights Declaration says all oh, life has equal value. Well, no, it doesn't. And we should be angry that it doesn't. Mm. And we should then have a policy and we should extend the circle of inclusion. But I don't think we can do it through abstraction. And I think that Nicholas Christakis, whether he's thought about this or not, is onto something that in most societies, because more often than not, they end with good outcomes mm. of looking after people, is the model for what works, that being physiologically, psychologically and emotionally engaged with each other is how you get the best outcomes. And that if you divorce from that to abstraction, you can throw money at it, but you better make sure you're throwing money at people who are physiologically, psychologically, emotionally engaged improving the situation where they are because we can't be because it's beyond our circle of meaningful connection it can be in our circle of aspiration to help but i need to know there's people at that end that get helping there like we get wanting to yeah, improve yep. here and i don't get that from a singer ever <laughs> i think i'm just about out of steam yeah no kidding i <laughs> got really interesting and now all of a sudden i'm feeling very weighed down by this you know I, still not certain what that means that i should be doing neither am i and i think we're gonna have to revisit this and you know if we read the book and reach out to nicholas i think we need nicholas on mm. because i wouldn't have thought of it in the social terms and remembered benedict anderson and imagine communities without hearing nicholas and I'm not sure Nicholas has got the answer either, but he reminded me that it is about this circle of connection and that it's easier to be effective in it because it immediately matters and we're connected. But you can do stuff beyond it, but you're automatically less connected. And maybe the way to counter that is to make sure you're as connected as possible and that you know when you help outside of your circle of connection and care, mm. that you're making sure people who you're providing resources to have 
a circle of connection and care that they're trying to grow as well. That by helping them, the two circles of care and connection are growing toward each other. Because it's a should. We should all care about each other. Mm. And we should all value each other. And we should increase value of life and quality of life. And we can have a podcast on what would be the consequences of if we didn't. <laughs> now, if we have a, if we had a society where you know, life is not valued and I was born nine weeks early and blind, I would have been the human the Spartans would have left for the wolves. Mm. Is that a good use of David? I don't think so. Wolf food or lecturer? Pick. So we can have a podcast on that, but I think it's actually really short. I think I'm the perfect example of why any society worthy of Nicholas's belief in it, mm. that society's lead to good, is going to value life. But it's going to value life. Um, this, this also gets messy. It's going to value life that can employ its consciousness <laughs> well. So we get into a question, is it consciousness that really matters? And we touched on that. And again, maybe that's another episode for another day. It does get messy, but you know, it's it, nurture has a part to play in that. It's not, you know, David wasn't just going to be David by virtue of being born. So. Precisely. So, again, the quality of the society. Mm. And the smallest version of that's mum and dad. But it keeps extending outward to people who kept going, hey, that kid's all right. Mm. Let's give him a hand. Let's help him around being blind so he can excel. So. At least that should give our listeners the slightest bit of hope is that when you're out in the world, you can think of these interactions that you're having with children. I think at the best that they, that is where you can make the deepest impact that yeah. when you're out in the world, the best thing that you can possibly do with all of this in mind is to foster children. Yep. And that, be an exemplar to young adults. Yeah. That. It's the big game. Will make use of their consciousness. And your experience of being raised in a society that cares. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, it's a good place to end, isn't it? I'd say so. There's a lot to take in there, but hopefully we'll revisit. But uh, I guess maybe just recap some books that we can read. So there's... Nicholas Christakis's mm-hmm. book, Blueprint. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. I, I think Righteous Mind plays into this really well. Yeah, Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. I think people need to go back and find Benedict Anderson's book, Imagine Communities. Mm-hmm. And Glasser. Yeah, and William Glass, a choice three, which we'll have that episode out. So who knows yes. what order they'll come out in. <laughs> I do. Oh, yeah. Well, he does. So he, he can edit that bit out and make it work how he likes. Yes. Right. Well, thank you, David, for um, tearing my world down and allowing me to rebuild it. <laughs> thank you for letting me. <laughs> we'll catch you. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.